do I have to say? Hi. This is like a bias. No. It's, um, okay. the book's name is Fast Forward Urbanism. No, no pressure. I don't know. Richard Florida is who's your city? Do you want me to say it as a sentence or just the book title? <laughs> a sense of place, sense of time. No concept. I'm on a boat. Okay. I'm not um, bragging. This is a point of fact. Okay, I'm, I'm a little bit bragging. Question is, what's your favorite book about urbanism or city? Okay. We're chugging um, through the Toronto Island lagoons, ostensibly to take in the view. It's really just a ploy to corner people and ask them their favorite book about cities. For you, listeners. Always for you. From a collection of essays to investigative journalism to historical fiction, few things can open your eyes to a city the way a good book can. And look, it's too hot out for some saccharine monologue about the power of literature. I won't subject you to that. Yet. I'll just say that, depending on how you're looking to engage with your city, a book can fulfill you much more than your daily newspaper, maybe even your favorite urbanist podcast. Well, let's not go overboard. I picture myself in that physical space because it's my city. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. There's still enough summer left to get a book or two in as you stretch out in a park or by the beach, so consider this our summer reading episode. Coming up on the show, we talk to a criminal defense lawyer about policing in an age of hyper-diversity, and we call up a photographer who spent the 90s capturing the grunge rock scene in Toronto. But first... Ali Abadia is the Director of Community Engagement for the Toronto Youth Cabinet, Young People's official voice at City Hall. The group has put out a summer reading list for youth looking to engage with their city, but it's really a great way in for people of any age with topics ranging from Toronto history to navigating municipal politics. And I sat down with Alia in Nathan Phillips Square. So first, if you could tell our readers uh, a little bit about what uh, the Toronto Youth Cabinet is, uh, what it does, and how people can get engaged with it. Yeah, so the Toronto Youth Cabinet is the official youth advisory board, essentially, uh, for City Hall. And so since 1998, um, it's the uh, cabinet has been giving a voice to young people um, in building and advocating for a youth-friendly, accessible, and equitable city. And so since 1998, we've been, uh, we've had a lot of working groups, which are all youth-led and uh, youth uh, participatory. And um, currently we're working on uh, a lot of campaigns for transit, specifically fair equity, um, and uh, things like policing, community safety. And so we have a meeting uh, every second Thursday of every month, and you're welcome to come and uh, either start a new project from scratch or uh, work with existing projects. And this summer, uh, the Youth Cabinet is doing something interesting. It's a summer reads program in partnership with uh, the Toronto Public Library. Uh. Yeah, so the way this project started was uh, quite personal. So in 2001, I moved to Toronto, and my parents didn't really know what to do with us, I guess. So they uh, kicked us into the library. And so the, libra- the Toronto Public Library used to have this great, and I think, I believe still does, has a summer reads program in which for every book you read, you receive a sticker, and then you put the sticker on a poster, and then this like magnificent image uh, of, uh, is created. And so uh, every year you would want to read about, 20, uh, about 8 to 20 books, 
um, to uh, create this great picture and you would get prizes, things like, like I got my first Harry Potter book out of one of these uh, summer reads programs. So I've, I've been thinking about this project or this campaign for a while and I wanted to do it around a theme that I was really involved or passionate about. And the one that popped up was civic engagement, specifically around young people. Because this, I think there's a myth that young people are not involved, but I think it is due to the inaccessibility of the information that currently exists. Um, and so that was uh, one, of, one of the impetuses for the project. And the second was that the Toronto Public Library is already a treasure trove of youth engagement, right? Young people are going to the library uh, every day, getting involved in these youth advisory groups, trying to learn skills like, um, you know, in terms of like graphic design or coding within the library system. So it was such an easy way to kind of uh, share uh, similar uh, endeavors. Right, and what are some of the titles that stand out in, in the Youth Cabinet's uh, recommended reading list? Yeah, so uh, the one that I really liked was um, Edward Keenan's The Art of the Possible. And so I don't, I don't think that I'm the target audience as a 23-year-old for that book, but I think it was, it was so refreshing because it was not hackneyed, right? It wasn't like politics is important because it just is. It's, it was kind of uh, dissecting the root of politics, the idea that politics is people, people in their everyday lives, um, kind of relating to one another and issues that arise from that. And so I think that was one of my favorite titles, but also I'm really excited to read Sheila Sumpet's Letters, Letters Lived, um, just because I'm really aware of her work with Shameless Magazine um, that uh, gives a space to uh, youth and uh, queer youth um, in the city of Toronto. Right. And circling back to this uh, possible misconception that, uh, that Toronto youth are just not interested or just totally disengaged from the political system, you, in promoting this idea, you started off by saying everyone is political, and maybe you can unpack that a little. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm gonna. I think uh, as a young person myself, I don't think young people are disengaged. I think they are engaged in. Uh, avenues that may not seem traditional to politicians, to community workers already. So they are engaged on Facebook groups, on social media, but also in their schools, in uh, the tech world, in uh, so many different, in sports, in community centers, in so many avenues that I think are not seen as traditional avenues or uh, spaces of politics. Um, and just don't don't only take my word for it, right? So the Samara just released a report called, or last year released a report called Message Not Delivered, uh, unpacking the fact that young people are engaged, um, young people are the primary demographic who volunteer for campaigns, volunteer for nonprofit organization, attend rallies and protests, sign petitions. So the idea that young people are just like sitting on their couch is uh, a misnomer, is incorrect. Um, Helen Haste, uh, she's a graduate, uh, a, I think a visiting professor at Harvard, has done a lot of research on young people's involvement in uh, issues of international development. And so the idea that young people are, don't want to be engaged is, I think, incorrect. And I think it's time to put the onus on information disseminators, in uh, elected officials, in uh, you know, pre-existing institutions of power, and not the onus of newcomers. Right. Do you think uh, currently that, that uh, Toronto youth ha have a proper voice? Uh, I mean, I, I know Toronto Youth Cabinet does a lot, and, and we have councillors like Josh Matlow who are trying to be, uh, you know, youth ambassadors. Um, 
Is there something more that, uh, you know, we can do in City Council and, and in our other uh, avenues? Yeah, so I think one thing uh, City Hall has done effectively, or several uh, initiatives within City Hall, is that a lot of them now have youth advisory groups. For example, Canada 150, to celebrate the uh, 150th birthday of Canada next year, has uh, a couple of youth members on their advisory committee, um, you know, Toronto Public Health and Food Security uh, committees um, within City Hall all have youth members on their board. So that's very well and good. I think there's more to be done. So, uh, for example, creating a youth body for uh, the TTC board or having youth members on the TTC board might be a good start. And, you know, thinking about uh, interviewing and serving youth uh, within each committee in the future, within each interim report, might be a really good campaign as well. So, for instance, right now, uh, city committees release interim reports and presentations, special presentations about uh, after community consultations revealing their results, saying that this policy should be put forth for XYZ reasons. But the youth demographic or the demographic of people surveyed is never released, and I think that's one step forward or would be a, a recommendation of mine to uh, engage more young people. And what are some uh, further projects that uh, the Youth Cabinet is working on? I think you said something to me uh, about fair equity. So, uh, right, so recently we had Brie Gardner, a member of the Toronto Youth Cabinet, give a deputation at the TTC board meeting July 12th, I believe. Um, and in the future, we're working together to create a Toronto Youth Cabinet platform. We're also advocating for perhaps an equity uh, body within the TTC board or within, uh, within uh, City Hall to work with uh, young people and marginalized people all across the city to maybe have their voices at the forefront because they will be the people most impacted by any decisions regarding distance-based models, fair equity, um, kind of, you know, eliminating legacy fair media, which is just a politically motivated way of saying tokens and tickets. So I think that's one step forward. But we are still in the process of... Uh, talking to a lot of youth, specifically from NI, uh, neighborhood improvement areas, um, and, and then collating that information. Well, Aliyah, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you so much. This is great. And you can find the full Toronto Youth Cabinet reading list on their website at thetyc.ca. In the late 80s to mid-90s, photographer Derek Von Essen was in the front row for musical acts that came to define the sound of a generation. At the birth of the grunge rock era, Von Essen and writer Phil Saunders saw bands like Mudhoney, Sonic Youth, and Nirvana develop their skills in front of evolving Toronto music fans. Years later, the photographer-journalist duo took stock of their experiences with the book No Flash Please, Underground Music in Toronto, 1987-92. And we reached Von Essen at his home in B.C. So first of all, uh, tell me a little bit about the book, uh, how, how it came together uh, with you and your writing partner. Well, uh, both Phil and I uh, came from that scene in Toronto in the 80s, uh, him as a writer, myself as a photographer. And I ran into Phil, uh, probably, oh, sorry, maybe I'll backtrack a bit. He uh, was totally immersed in this scene, probably more so than, than myself. Uh, he made a career out of it for, for quite some time, whereas this is more a, a hobby for myself. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I guess it lasted probably about six, seven years for me uh, before I decided to move to Vancouver and uh, everything changed when I got here. 
uh, out west. But I uh, ran into Phil um, about, I don't know, five, six years ago or so, and uh, we had a little chat about the old days. And uh, both of us agreed that, that a book was definitely necessary, or at least something that could um, that we could kind of hold high uh, from our own memories and, and depict it for others to see. Yeah, and the photos are, are quite striking. Uh, can you tell, uh, you know, we'll try and paint a little picture for the listeners. You have I- iconic rock figures, uh, sometimes before they were iconic, uh, and, and it really captures this, uh, this scene that uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with um, uh, in very stunning black and white. Yeah, the um, I think the the goal for me was uh, to shoot my friends and people I wanted to be friends with. So, <laughs> you know, I, there, there's a lot of Toronto uh, indie music that's covered in there, and people that I, I greatly admired at the time. But then, um, you know, as with, with all music, it kind of crosses boundaries. So, you know, a lot of touring bands that would come through, I'd get pretty excited about, and knowing that I'd I've, I'd kind of figured out how to shoot. Uh, in low light, I'd always bring my camera around to these kind of shows as well. And yeah, I'd, I happened to catch a lot of bands uh, as they were were just getting their footing. Um, Nirvana and Soundgarden, um, Jesus Lizard, uh, Mudhoney, a lot of bands who were their their first shows as they came through Toronto. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty exciting at the time. You know, we just we thought it was high energy rock and roll. It was it was great, but um, you know, a lot of those bands ended up. Uh, really leaving an imprint. And so were you a photographer first and a fan second, or was it just kind of a, a, a great uh, a combination of things that happened at one time? Definitely a fan first. I, I picked up the camera uh, almost as a, a means to go to as many shows as I can and kind of uh, rationalize it. <laughs> you know, it seemed uh, something, first of all, I could always go to a show by myself and feel like I was there for a reason without kind of just standing in the front all alone. So it, uh, it, was, it was just a, it was a fun thing to, to have. And at the time, you know, I was just getting into photography. So it gave me a subject matter to, to really focus on. Right. And a lot of our listeners are probably very familiar with uh, the sort of indie rock renaissance that happened in Toronto in the, the early 2000s. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this scene? This is going back a little bit further. Uh, a lot of the same venues that you take us to in the book are, are the same, the Rivoli, the Silver Dollar, uh, but there's uh, probably some dives you could uh, you could take us to that uh, maybe no longer exist. Yeah. Um, Ildico's, um, the Sibony, the, the like that was in Kensington Market. Um, I don't even know what's there now. I think, that, uh, I think the building is still there, but there must be some big big space, open space above it somewhere. It was on the second floor. Um, I'm drawing a blank on what couldn't be around now. I guess the diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that goes under another name now too. And so, but, what did, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And what, what did the scene like feel like, you know, the, the whole city must've been slightly different and Queen West places like that, that are now big hubs for those kind of venues. Uh, it's changed dramatically in even just a, a couple of years. It has. And, you know, one, I think the biggest thing for me is there was less people. Like you could get around, you can get around the city a lot easier. I used to cycle everywhere um, without issue, you know, practically weaving on, on, on Queen Street on the road and you wouldn't hit a car. And, um, you know, you can get to and from shows and different clubs pretty easy that way. Clubs themselves were never, um, just they didn't seem packed. Um, you know, there was always shows happening at, at any given night. 
So it it just seemed just everything uh, seemed less cluttered. Right. And what what were some of the acts that you were most excited to see where you, you kind of got that feeling that maybe you were watching, uh, you know, history in the making? Uh, for me, like the, there was some local bands in, in Toronto, um, mid to late eighties that I just, I latched right onto, uh, Shadow Men and Shadow of the Planet, yeah. uh, the Dundrells, <laughs> um, you know, the Dundrells played our, our book launch party in, um, in May at the Horseshoe, uh, and they hadn't been together for whatever that is, 27, 28 years. Uh, so that was fantastic to see them come together for that. Uh, the lawn, um, you know, like there was something different, I think, about it too, because it wasn't wasn't one genre of music. Um, right. Though, you know, some of the ones that I favored, they did have kind of a, a garage, like a '60s garage um, influence to them, I guess. But uh, I wouldn't say that that was something that um, you know the average person might pick up on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of them were worker, um, sorry, record store employees. And, um, you know, the kind of people that hung out in record stores on a Saturday afternoon. And, uh, you know, these were the musicians and the fans alike. So, you know, that's, I think that's how I became friends with, with some of them as well, because you'd see them at night on stage and then buy a record off them on, you know, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And there's there's one picture in the book that's particularly striking, which uh, I think a lot of listeners would, would be very interested to see is... is uh, is a younger Kurt Cobain just really tearing into it? Uh, what was that like? Uh, that that was pretty amazing. Uh, partly because I hadn't expected it. I had heard um, some of their songs, but I didn't know too much about it. I had just been told, you know, oh well, if you you know if you're digging Mudhoney, who I was, I loved. I thought Mudhoney were cats meow, and they totally they they put it out there more than I thought most other bands did at the time. Um, yeah, so a friend said, "Oh, you gotta check out Nirvana. They're they're fantastic. They put on quite a show." And you know, I'd have to say they put on a better show than they did actually play the music. Like that, it was a pretty, <laughs> it was exciting uh, to watch them just uh, destroy the stage and right. and get angry. Actually, it wasn't even them. It was Kurt Cobain. Like he really, he was, <laughs> he had a mission that night. He was a little angry at the um, Toronto audience for for being. Uh, you know, the sit-down crowd. <laughs> Not a Toronto audience, no. <laughs> I know, I know. Not just a sit-down crowd, but they left like a hole, maybe, you know, the entire Leaf Palace dance floor was open, except for me and I think there was one other photographer. You know, we each kind of took a corner and would stray in the front every now and then and, and just hope we weren't either sprayed with glass or beer or yelled at. Right. And so now do you do you still uh, take take the camera out and follow some bands out west or...? Uh, on occasion, I, I shoot, um, you know, if somebody asked me, I, I would probably do it, um, and I have done it, and, uh, you know, I shoot the odd band that, that I, I really want to see, um, or at least I want to have a, a, a souvenir of my own, right, and but you... on the most part, no, I can't I can't really get up that close, and I don't have the interest of, of, of fighting a, a crowd with elbows and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any advice for uh, someone who might be uh, an aspiring, uh, you know, rock f- photographer? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't. I think, I think today's generation of, of, uh, music photographers can kind of, they have to, they have to take a totally different approach than I ever did. You know, I had, I had no competition. Um, there was, there's very few people who would, be shooting uh, the same show as me. And even then, you know, be kind of like, 
you know, you'd find kindred spirit if you did meet another photographer at a show. And so you'd just be chatting up about photo stuff and, you know, bands that they've been shooting and stuff. But on the most part, I think today it, it would be very difficult to carve out a career in that if, if that was something that, uh, you know, a younger person would be interested in. The book again is No Flash Please, Underground Music in Toronto, 1987 to 92, and it's available at the Spacing Store, 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. Also available is Subdivided, City Building in an Age of Hyperdiversity. We're very proud of our diversity in Toronto, at least on paper. But subdivided through a series of essays covering a variety of issues asks us if we truly embrace diversity in practice or if we just like saying it. Nana Yonfel is a criminal defense lawyer, and her chapter in Subdivided, Policing and Trust in the Hyperdiverse City, looks at alternative policing models needed to help fill the trust gap between Canadian law enforcement and marginalized communities in an age where police brutality and systematic racism are being called out all over the world. So to start off, if you can tell me a little bit about the, the work that you do. Sure. Um, well, I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, so I have the privilege of representing a wide variety of individuals, mostly uh, men, uh, racialized men, Aboriginal men. Um, but I have had a great opportunity to do a lot of youth uh, criminal justice defense, and I've also just recently started working in human rights law. So uh, that's kind of a, a summary of what I've been doing these days. And for your chapter uh, on Subdivided, which I've managed to go over a couple of times now, uh, you, you mainly discuss alternative policing models. Uh, can you unpack some of those for, for the readers? So I thought it would be interesting to look at policing from the perspective of trust and the trust deficit. So in doing that, I was trying to look at the reasons why people don't trust the police. It's fairly obvious, but uh, the reasons why people don't um, and some of the strategies that people have enacted to try and rebuild rebuild that trust. And so through that community policing lens, um, they've tried to look at alternative forms of, uh, of community and police interactions. However, in the book, I do criticize that, that model because oftentimes it just glosses over some of the systemic change that needs to be made. So when I look at democratic policing as potentially a better solution, that's holding uh, states, institutions accountable for their processes. They're accountable to the people who have, you know, by various ladders have appointed them in some respects. Um, so they're, uh, they're accountable to the people um, and in turn, they are held accountable. So when things occur, not they shouldn't be swept away. They shouldn't be ignored when people ask for consultations and for actual meaningful conversations. Those things aren't ignored. So that's, those are the kind of things I was trying to unpack there. Um, and I think by looking at alternative modes, that's even just tip, you know scratching the surface. A lot of people are saying, you know what, how can a system like a police system actually be transformed? If anything, we need to be looking at models outside of the traditional policing system where communities are responsible for their own safety to a limit. Um, but where communities are responsible for themselves, they make decisions within their own community, they have the expertise that's there. If police systems and institutions aren't going to be listening to us, what else does that look like? So I think that's almost the next step, that next conversation, that since we've been highlighting all of the, uh, the issues with transparency and accountability, especially here in Toronto, if those systems aren't going to listen, they're not going to reform, kind of what's the next step? So I think this chapter just kind of touches on the surface of what's been going on, but I think also it's almost like a a call to action to, to look beyond the things that we've been told um, kind of have worked in other jurisdictions. So. 
Right, and within that uh, democratic model of policing is the concept that they, they call the do no harm model. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, an institution like the police cannot maintain the status quo if, if they're going to do no harm. Right. So with do no harm, it means that any action or any policy or program that the police enact, it's it's meant to serve and protect, not further ostracize and, uh, and impact communities negatively. So when you uh, develop a system like Tavis, for example, uh, the do no harm with Tavis, we didn't see that. <laughs> it, instead, we saw communities um, uh, being stereotyped. We saw uh, officers coming from outside of the community uh, being, being kind of placed into these situations where they were bringing a lot of their own stereotypes there. So within that, there was quite a bit of harm done. There's still um, a lot of rifts between uh, communities and police in those specific neighborhoods, specifically uh, priority neighborhoods in Toronto, where um, that do-no-harm model d didn't exist there. Instead, there was, there was um, um, I guess, acts that further uh, divided that trust between citizens and police. And when you look at Do No Harm, it's supposed to be a system where there's proper aid, there's um, actual benefit to a community having interactions with the police. And obviously Toronto's dealing with this. Uh, many Canadian cities are, uh, they've been forced to examine themselves and, uh, and their police force. So why is this conversation finally taking place? Well, I think this conversation has been taking place for many years, for decades in the city. We have uh, community members who have been advocating for this for quite a long time. Um, I think now it's becoming a bit more mainstream because we have more access to social media. We, we see what's going on um, down south and we say, oh, well, we're not as bad. And so I think we, we've, we've kind of been looking more at ourselves because we're trying to compare. We're saying, okay, look what's happening there. Like, that's not happening here, is it? And we have more people like Black Lives Matter, like um, the Network for the Elimination of Police Violence, a lot of different groups who are saying, you know what, we actually have our own issues. We need to focus on these. Yes, we can draw attention to what's going on with our brothers and sisters in the South, but let's not forget that we have uh, a serious issue here with police accountability and transparency, not just in Toronto, but across the country. Um, so I think it's always been happening, but I don't think people have been listening or willing to listen um, until things around the world have been kind of showcased in social media and it's causing us to question, you know, where do we rank on that scale of police brutality? So, Yeah, you say in the book that uh, racism in Canada largely oper operates uh, a little more covertly is, is your term. Um, and uh, maybe that's uh, why it's difficult for Canadian cities to grasp uh, how, how something like, you know, systematic racism could be acting in our institutions. Totally. I completely agree with that. I think it's it's almost like that the difficulty with uh, convincing uh, white liberals that, you know, they need to address their own power and privilege. It's like, oh, but we've been doing so well on all these other things, you know, and I could see that with uh, with a lot of Canadian citizens and the discourse around police brutality. It's like, well, we're not like the states. Like, look, we have this, we have this, we have this. But if we're going to continually only look at, um, at what we're doing better than the ways that we can change, I think that's a real, that's a real problem. So while it operates more covertly, I don't think that means that uh, within our systems we don't have anti-black racism, we don't have problems with transparency and accountability with our, with our institutions, specifically the police. I don't think that means that we're exempt from all of those things. I do think it just means that when citizens interact, um, 
there's almost like this nicety around the issue. So it's very passive aggressive. Even the conversation when it comes to policing in Toronto, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. We're not getting killed. Like it, it's, it's not really addressing the issues where um, I think in the U.S. people are just a bit more overt about their racism where they're just like, you know what? Maybe they deserve to die. Like, who knows? Like, they're just a little bit more overt. Where here, people, if it's not overt and it's covert, I say that's a lot of silence. Like, you see people just not speaking up or not being allies in the ways that they should be. So that's the difference I would see. Yeah. Right. And the, the idea that systematic racism exists at all in Canada, in some corners, uh, people people look at you like you slap them in the face, even just to suggest. Uh, it's interesting to may, maybe you can comment on why, for some people, even just the idea that that exists is, is somehow an insult to them. Well, I think that's it. Like, an insult to them, they take it so personally. And I think that uh, that makes the, diff the conversation hard because then for the person who's experiencing racism on a daily basis, whether it's uh, systemic or not, uh, well, ra racism is systemic. So uh, the person who's experiencing, to have to then stop kind of explaining or uh, describing their situation, they then have to turn to that individual who's so shocked about their experiences and the attention is diverted away. That, that individual who's so shocked ends up sucking a lot of that energy and the focus ends up becoming how to deal with their white guilt or other kind of guilt, you know? And so I think that's, that's it's really problematic. And I think that movements like uh, Black Lives Matter in Toronto and elsewhere and different groups, as I mentioned before, who've been working on this for a long time, I think are really trying to shift that conversation to say, okay, we need to kind of look at our own communities, take care of our own communities. Um, and from that, we can kind of have conversations that are safer, that aren't going to be about taking care of the other person uh, when in fact, we need to address kind of our own um, hurt and pain in our community, but also the ways that we've been resilient and we're continuing to fight against a lot of this brutality that's going on. So, Right. And, and so a question that I wondered when, as I was reading your chapter is if there can ever be real change within our police forces without the admission from them that systematic racism is a thing that does exist within them uh, and, and can often perpetuate racism and if they refuse to adapt and work with community. So what would happen if they continue to act the way they were acting? Well, as I mentioned at the top, like uh, communities are going to have to do their own thing and take their their safety and their protection in their own hands. And I think that uh, we're, we're starting to see that already. Um, when police say, you know, there's an incident in a certain neighborhood and no one wants to come forward and, and, and talk, it's like... They're, they're almost forgetting how trust is such an important piece of that. How can they, they trust when they've called in the past when uh, someone is breaking down their door, they've called in the past when they've been experiencing domestic violence and you don't show up, you know? Um, how are they going to, why, how would a community think that uh, they can trust you and can share some super confidential and potentially harmful information uh, to police? So I think communities are already starting to say, okay, uh, not vigilantes, but I think people are starting starting to look at how can we almost do more neighborhood watch. And we know neighborhood watch has existed for, you know, decades. Um, and putting their own kind of community or democratic policing into their own hands. So um, I think we're going to see more of that. I think we are... Um, it's going to be more maybe community consultations with police saying these are our demands. This is what we need. It's not going to just be from the BLMs. Um, I think they've been great at forging ahead and kind of showing an example of what that could be. But I think it's we're going to start seeing it being more at the community level where uh, neighborhoods are going to get together and have their own set of specific community-centered demands uh, to law enforcement.
Now let's check in with our publisher, Matt Blackett, who's going to tell us about Spacing's summer national issue in stores now. And he's going to tell us about an exciting film festival we invite you all to take part in. All right, so Matt, what can we find in the latest issue? Our summer issue is our uh, single national issue that we do each year. Um, excited about it because you know one of the reasons why we started doing a national uh, edition of the magazine was to show the the linkage between uh, some of the issues that we share. So um, uh, Toronto can learn from Edmonton, Vancouver can learn from Montreal. Uh, quite often we, we live in this very kind of local bubble and I think that's just the nature of Canadian cities. We're very far apart from one another so we don't get to learn as much from each other as say uh, American cities do. So I'm, that's what I'm excited about when we do our national issues and uh, in particularly this issue I think we've got a lot of really interesting stuff so one of the things that um, it's, a, it's a photo essay on Neon Edmonton so what Edmonton has done is they've had a, 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 a neon sign a historical association uh, that's restored these these wonderful old signs um, and then they've they've erected them on the side of a TELUS uh, building right downtown in the uh, uh, the new arena ice district I, I believe they're calling it um, and so uh, there's there's about room for 30 signs and they're from all over the city but they're now collected into this one spot because obviously neon is not used anywhere near as uh, often as, as, as it once was um, and uh, it's on the side of a, a, a telecommunications electrical building so it kind of makes some sense um, and it adds a little bit of like a vibrancy to a to a, to a to a dead wall basically it was a wall that was all bricks no windows and gives it a little bit of a life so we have a photo essay on that um, another article that I'm, uh, I'm I'm interested for readers to dive into is is about um, the gay village in Montreal and if, if, if you've been there um, during the, the the warm months of the year they have this uh, the the pink balls um, is, is really what they are, and it, they're, they're um, suspended over top of uh, the St. Catherine, uh, the main street of the, of the village. And it, it's, it's a very kind of spectacular looking uh, space when, when these balls are up, but they take them down. And what our, what our uh, contributor, our writer does, Tim Forster, um, he writes about um, whether this is actually co constitutes a, a true public space because the, it's a business development area. Um, uh, and, and this project is an initiative of the business development uh, community there, and so it, it, it's you, you. He questions whether this is something, whether the street is now a public space, or is this just kind of like uh, a mallification of of, of uh, a dynamic part of the city? And he contrasts it with a, uh, a public space, um, a park that's right beside it that is a temporary but hosts lots of events and is um, incorporates uh, and, and encourages people from all different types of walks of life to take part in in and uh, into the into that public space. So I, I think it's actually quite a he does a really nice job contrasting the the the, the two spaces, the, the the street and this and this park and, and shows how um, uh, how this area is being developed and, and, and raised some really in, important questions. And then we have some other like some uh, other like charming articles from other cities. Um, Calgary, for instance, there's been a, 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 a real spike in uh, female ridership. Um, and, it, and it comes down to the fact that they've made uh, fully separated bike tracks, bike lanes um, that are separate from the rest of traffic. And uh, so we, we have an article kind of dives into that topic. Um, we have a, a great feature on uh, Mimetica, an, an, uh, an artist in Ottawa, um, uh, a music artist in Ottawa who has uh, created uh, a soundtrack to the city. It's called uh, Richmond to Rideau, um, and it's 
basically he's ridden a bus line, the number two bus line in Ottawa, and bought records at record shops along the bus route and then made an album, a vinyl album, out of uh, those records that he bought. Um, we sell it in the spacing store, and it, it, it's, uh, it's just kind of a, a really unique way of exploring the city. Um, and then we also have a... Uh, uh, kind of interesting, uh, rather interesting article about healthy cities and what makes them healthy, and it's from a uh, professor um, at the University of uh, New Brunswick, um, and he talks about all the kind of urban design and land use patterns and and, and the things that actually go to making healthy cities, um, especially especially in Canada when we have to deal with the winter as well. Um, so we got a lot of like interesting articles that we really dive dive deep into and kind of uncover the details of, of urbanism in, in Canadian cities. Right, and if we uh, pop down to the spacing store at 401 Richmond Street West, uh, what will we see there? Well, it's great that we, we have a, a podcast dedicated to books because that's also one of the things that we, we sell in our store and we, we take great pride in, in not... not um, selling every type of book about Toronto, but we've, we've done, I think, a very good job of curating the, the selection of books that are, that are available. So, you know, um, you know we, we have a lot of stuff coming in the fall, seasons coming in, so we have some great books. Uh, uh, Toronto Then and Now is a fantastic historical look at, at the city. Um, I, I know we've, we've just talked to the photographer of the, the book about uh, the underground music scene in Toronto, so we, we, we have that. Um, we, have some, we have some other stuff that, that are coming in. One of our contributors, Adam bunch um, has a book coming out in the fall so we're, we're excited to be carrying carrying that so that it's uh, it's exciting to 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 see how many books are actually coming out about about the city and uh, what's this I hear about a drone film festival so we're, we're at the uh, end of October we are uh, hosting a, uh, a film night um, that's solely focused on uh, drone photography and videography or, or the issues surrounding drones. Um, and that'll be taking place at the Review Cinema on Roncesvalles, um, right near a, a, um, Howard Park Drive in, in Roncesvalles. Um, it's a fantastic uh, uh, time for film and photography. Um, and the issue of drones isn't going to go away. It's going to become more more prevalent and there's some amazing uh, photography and videography that is being created so we want to show that off and, and anyone can submit to this um, we have a jury that will will pick um, submissions so if you go to spacing.ca uh, check out uh, a link that we'll have to drone the drone film night um, and then you can submit to it and then hopefully we'll have your film um, as, as, as part of this event um, at the end of October and uh, we'll, we'll also have a discussion a little uh, uh, open debate about drones um, at this at this film night because we think it's a it's a it's a topic that's uh, worth worth discussing and uh, we've seen no one do anything about drone films um, specifically in drone uh, videography so we're we're kind of excited to be uh, be at the forefront of this. When I first came to this city, I couldn't relate to it. I would walk the streets with no frame of reference of what I was seeing. There was no sense of place, of coming and going. All I knew about Toronto was that I lived there, and it was the home of the Maple Leafs. Oddly enough, it was the founder of the Maple Leafs himself, Con Smythe, who changed all that for me. His autobiography, If You Can't Beat Him in the Alley, written with Scott Young, took us from Smythe's rough and tumble childhood at the turn of the last century on Raleigh, now Bay Street, in what was then called The Ward, to the somewhat more recognizable Toronto of the 1980s. After reading that book, I began to get my bearings. The city I lived in had a rich history and a promising future, 
and I could see both from where I stood. And it only took one eccentric, egotistical hockey team owner to help me see it. In fact, some might say Con Smythe's autobiography is the single greatest book about a city ever written. Okay, let's not go overboard. And that's the show. As always, thanks for giving us a spin. And don't forget to tell your co-workers, neighbors, and auto mechanics about us. And please, like, share, and subscribe. We'll be back in a month. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes the music. And you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions. You can find their website at pixelpi.ca. Don't be afraid to drop us a line. Questions, comments, issues, and tips are welcome. Find us on Twitter or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time, may that book you're searching for never go out of print. Cheers. Cheers.